Welcome to another episode of the Prayer Perspective Podcast. Matt here, and alongside me is Eric and Dinesh. On today's episode, we catch up with ESPN senior golf writer Bob Herrick to talk about his experiences with Tiger and how his relationship with him has evolved over the years, the logistical issues regarding the PGA Tour returning, and what it was like to cover John Daly. Next, we talk with TSN football insider Dave Naylor to discuss Canadian Chuba Hubbard's record-breaking redshirt sophomore season with the Oklahoma State Cowboys, his decision to stay in school, and the decisions looming for college football as well as the CFL. But first, boys, what's happening? Might be working the weekend this weekend because uh, got a report to do, not finished, so I might be working the weekend like usual, you know? Working on a weekend like usual. But uh, besides that... Just been uh, chilling, playing games. New order came in from Best Buy today and uh, Amazon yesterday. So I'm almost have my setup done. But uh, mom told me to keep it there for three days and don't touch it. So I don't know about that. But like, we'll see, man. Although I am actually going to be cooking up a steak right away here. Mm -hmm. That would be so good. I took it out to marinate this uh, morning or this afternoon early. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Steak and uh, potato wedges. If Matt's cooking it, shreddies and milk. Every meal of every day. Literally, man. That's all. And then the orange juice, too. He loves the orange juice. Oh. I crushed so much orange juice today, boys. Wow. I got my vitamin D in me. You mean C? (laughs) 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 And then big UFC event tomorrow, so I'll be tuned in for that. What's your pick? I'm taking Tony Ferguson over Justin Gaethje. He uh, hasn't lost in the UFC except for one fight. That was in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And uh, he's had a longer camp, didn't take the fight on short notice. So I'm taking uh, Tony Ferguson, champ shit only. What about you, Eric? What's happening? Not too much. Just been hanging out at home, getting lots of sun, long bike rides always. Uh, actually started helping building a fence with my grandpa and brother here at over at his place, so that's going well. Um, other than that, not too much. Start work on Monday. Boys, I think I might get rid of the mustache. No way. No. It's getting itchy. Or I just need to like trim the bottom so it's- it just. You got Austin Matthews the mustache and just put like a thin line. Yeah, yeah. Shave, yeah. shave above and shave below and just make a very thin line. I don't know if I can pull that off, to be honest with you. Oh, dude, one thing we missed, Fred Haskins' announcement was today. No way. At 6th Eastern. I don't know if – oh, man. I was going to tune in for that. It was on Golf Channel. Oh, we should actually get on that. That would be sweet. No, it's over now, man. I, but Sahith posted – Yo, he won it, boys. No way, let's go. No way, boys. Might have wow, to that's sick as well. Yeah, he said can't, words can't describe it. 50th Fred Haskins winner. So sick, bro. So he's in some pretty – like, who else has won the Fred Haskins? Like Tiger, Phil, like, Justin Thomas. Jesus. Man, our boy is going to the big leagues. Dude, this guy's the best college player there is. You know what they say on Chicklets? We gave him the Chicklets bump, but we gave him the Prairie Perspective podcast bump, and now look at the guy take off. He's the number one college golfer in America, and he'll be on the podcast come Tuesday, soft to gala. But now it's time to kick it over to our interview with Bob, presented to you by our friends, FNA. 
When asked the question, are you in or in the way, do you respond FNA? Founded in 2019 by a trio of Canadians, FNA attempts to inspire the pursuit of a no-bars-held lifestyle. The brand has been coined everything from new wave streetwear, athletic apparel, party attire, and even outdoor-driven. FNA seeks to stress they are more than an apparel company, but a way of living. No matter the circumstance, you can always say FNA. Check them out today at FNA.us. That's F-N-E-H.us. Welcome to the Prairie Perspective Podcast, a man who has spent 25 years covering the PGA Tour, ESPN senior golf writer, Bob Herrig. Bob, thanks for taking the time. Glad to do it, guys. Thanks for having me. I want to take you back to March 13th. You were on ESPN's first take with Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman after the Masters was postponed, and you said this. The initial reaction is, is this is a good move. If they were going to play it in a month's time, they were looking at having no spectators it would be impossible to think of playing the Masters without spectators out there. Now, looking at where we are today, have you kind of started to come around on that realization? And what are you hearing regarding logistics for the Charles Schwab Challenge and future events this season? I'm okay with the idea of no spectators for regular tour events to get back. You know, here we are almost two months later. That idea makes a lot of sense because I just don't think you'd be playing otherwise. It's too much of a logistical hurdle at this point to allow spectators, even five, 10,000. Think of, think of the issues that you're dealing with there. So I get it in terms of a tour event. At the time, I, I wasn't in favor of it for the Masters. The Masters has given itself time to see how this might play out. I still have a hard time believing the Masters could go on without spectators. Um, same with the Ryder Cup. Those events are just so driven by that experience. You know, I think it would be tough. It would be tough to not have have fans. So, but you know, we are in a totally unprecedented time with all of this, and and I don't blame any of the powers that be for considering every option. You know, and if it means they have to go on without fans, you know, I guess I guess that's what we're going to have to live with. It's a safety issue that they have to be concerned about, and I don't blame them for that. I know you're based in Florida, but do you spend any time at ESPN's headquarters in Bristol? And is Stephen A. the same guy we see in real life? <laughs> you know, I'm only up there maybe once or twice a year, and uh, I've only met him on occasion, and he's not the same when you meet him. <laughs> very, very low-key and very quiet and, and, you know, very nice and very personable. And in my brief encounter with him, I've gotten on with him just fine. And I've heard that from other people. That doesn't mean that shtick, though, when he goes on TV. I think he believes that stuff that he's, that he's saying. Uh, he just delivers it in a tone that is a little bit different than what you see when you see him in person. What are your thoughts on the schedule? Could, you, could the PGA Tour not have done something where they made the distances between tournaments more manageable or maybe run a 30-man tournament for the first week or two? I know it feels like there's really making this a lot more difficult than it really needs to be. It's a great point. You know, you look at it now and they're going from Texas to South Carolina to Connecticut to, to Michigan. That, that part of it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And the only thing I can think of is they are just, you know, very, very determined to do right by the actual tournaments themselves and the sponsors and knowing that they have infrastructure in place at these places, you know, you could see a scenario where why not go to some central location or some, some place and run two or three events in three straight weeks at the same course. You know, what difference does it make what, that the course isn't different? You know, yeah. if you're really wanting to get back, why not do that? Uh, you, save on, you save on so many logistical things, travel. You could have everybody just stay there. 
it's funny. I don't, that question hasn't been asked of them and it makes you wonder, you know, if they even gave that much thought they're, you know, they're, they're doing that a little bit on the corn ferry tour. They're going to have a couple of events run concurrently or uh, run back to back in the same spot. Uh, I don't know what the reason was on the PJ tour. I think it's a good question for us to ask, you know, you could even go to a multi golf course facility and, and, uh, you know, have an event at one one week and at the other the next. The Sawgrass, and where they play the Players' Championship, has another course. I think at this point, nobody cares about – if you're not going to have spectators, it doesn't really matter if they've got enough room. Uh, you just have to get the players out there. So, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that that's not being done because they've – it's going to be quite the daunting challenge to go from one place to the next um, if this even happens. I mean, we're five weeks away now. And I think there's a lot of things they still have to work their ways through to make sure that this can happen. Uh, we've heard talk regarding Augusta playing quite a bit longer in November. Do you think it will have a significant effect on the tournament? You know, I think it's possible. Um, uh, it's possible that it could play a lot different than what we're used to seeing, you know, cooler, windier, uh, you know, maybe damper, uh, certainly shorter days. At that point in time, we'll have gone back to standard time. So that, you know, it's going to be getting dark at least an hour, hour and a half earlier. They're going to have to do some things with tee times. They might have to go off both sides, which they don't like to do. They usually just all go off the first hole. Um, so there's, there's going to be some interesting parts of that, too. It's going to look a little different. Uh, but, you know, if it's dry, um, I think the course can play fast and firm. That's how they would prefer it anyway. If it plays a little longer, so be it. And I think we will just be so happy to have it. We're, we will be enthralled by anything that it looks like. If it's different or if it plays different, I think we're going to be good with that. I, frankly, I think we're going to be good with that for all of it. You know, once it comes back in any, in, in any way, it's, it, it, even with no spectators, we're just going to be thrilled to have it. Canadian Adam Hadwin shared that he may not be able to play if he's not able to pull the flag stick on the greens. Is this sentiment... Other players are also perhaps saying behind closed doors? Well, you know, there's been a couple of player comments about things that some players think would be difficult to deal with and maybe some of their peers might not be comfortable with. The, the other one is no, not having rakes in the bunkers, uh, although I do think there's a way around that. But, um, you know, if they were to elect to not have rakes in the bunkers, you know, I saw where Scott Stalling said he thinks some guys might have a problem with that because it's going to affect their livelihood. Uh, and, and in Adam Hadwin's case, he said he has a hard time putting with the flag stick in. And I guess, you know, my, my response to that is, is, is that in golf terms, in purely golf terms, I get that those are issues and can be, there's probably lots of things that can be issues. The, 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 the idea of tending a flag stick, you know, sometimes a player likes that, uh, uh, you know, just the, the interaction with the caddy, if they might, if they make if they might distance them, will they be okay with that? But I think what you have to do is you have to take about 10 steps back and look at the big picture and recognize that if you're playing golf and you're inconvenienced by the flagstick being in or have not having rakes and bunkers, you're, you're sort of missing the point. Think of how many people in the working world are going to go back to work and be inconvenienced by something that they face, whether it's having to wear a mask all day, or maybe having to wear, you know, gloves and a smock or something like that in a restaurant. 
uh, all the things that are going to be different. So, you know, golfers aren't going to look too good if they're complaining about the, the bunkers not being perfect. It's just, and, and again, I'm willing to, to take those arguments for the very narrow golf view of it. I get that, but you better, these guys better step back and look at the big picture and, you know, be willing to deal with some inconveniences. I mean, there's going to be things too, like, are they going to be told not to arrive too early to the course to warm up, you know, to keep down on the numbers on site? There probably won't be a fitness trailer on site. They might be limited in how much they can practice even after a round. These things are, are not ideal, but hey, look, to get back, I think we take them and we live with it. What's something that goes on behind the scenes on tour that maybe the average fan doesn't know or would be surprised by? I think, well, something that comes to mind? yeah, I mean, sure. There's, there's, um, you know, some of these guys have, they're, they're friendly with each other. They might, they might to get, they might get together, uh, after a round there's, you know, there's, there's social activities that they take part in with their families. Um, you know, there's daycare on site for families with kids. Um, I'm not sure a lot of people realize that, but, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the ones that travel with the family, they can bring their kids to, to uh, a daycare situation at the tournament site for several hours a day so that, you know, the mom can go out and watch or maybe get some things done. And uh, uh, so, so uh, you know, now how much of that stuff can, can take place going forward, I think is going to be quite limited. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's things like that that happen every week that we don't think of. I mean, some, some, guys, uh, some guys travel, uh, you know, privately, uh, uh, you know, that, and, and, and luxuriously, you know. I mean, I think some people are aware of that. But, um, you know, that's another aspect to this. Could, could, could that be a benefit to somebody who has their own, uh, who has their own ability to, to, uh, to fly, you know, they don't have to worry about going to going through airports and, and sitting with a bunch of other people. I've been around the game for 25 years now. Uh, Tiger made his PGA tour debut in 1992. How has your relationship with him evolved over the years? Yeah, well, good question. I mean, I've been there for all of his major wins and probably, oh, maybe a little more than half of his 82. Um, I'd have to count that up. It's in the 40s, I know. Um, I used to work at a newspaper called the St. Petersburg Times. Now it's called the Tampa Bay Times. And uh, that's where I was covering him in the beginning. And my relationship with him really didn't begin to evolve until I went to work for ESPN, uh, which was in 2007. I mean, that's a time frame when you know, I was covering a lot more tournaments because of my role at ESPN. He certainly is familiar with ESPN. He got to know who I was. And I would, I would call our relationship pretty good. I mean, for a guy who is as famous as he is, as guarded as he is, um, you know, as media shy as he is, he's not shy to deal with the media, but he limits it. You know, I would say all in all, it's been pretty good. I've had you know, a, a good bit of access. I've been able to ask questions, you know, with, when I see him on site, uh, he's, he's always been good to me. Um, you know, obviously there's a few tense moments along the way with everyone, but for the most part, you know, I'd have to say it's been pretty good. I'm pretty, you know, I feel pretty fortunate that, um, you know, that he's, he's made time for me over the years or, or entertain my questions and, and seems to respect the work that I do. Uh, and, um, and, and I think, you know, I think he probably feels that I've treated him fairly. You know, there, he's been through a lot. 
there's been a lot of ups and downs in his career, certainly the off the course stuff and the, and the injuries. And, you know, I, I always try to just keep it straight and play it down the middle and not be too critical or, or, you know, or give too much praise actually either, you know, because we just never knew everything. It's hard to understand exactly. And, uh, you know, if anything, I've given him his due for what he's accomplished. It's a remarkable career. And what he's done since he's come back is off the charts great. You know, to win three times, to be in the top 10 in the world. You know, he was, what, 1,100th in the world when he started to come back at the end of 2017. It's pretty impressive. Say you're sitting down with some buddies, maybe having a beer, and uh, they want to know about Tiger. Like, do you, have a, do you have a go-to story that you like to tell? You know, uh, I might tell a story or two about some things that he's confided um, that he wouldn't want out there. Uh, he's, he's, he's been pretty trusting on things like that. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll just, I guess I could give you a hint in that it's very clear that he was, um, uh, not happy with the way some portrayed him in the light of the scandal, uh, you know, back in 2009, 2010. Uh, and maybe given some of their own faults, you know, and so that that has come out. Um, but there's also, you know, like a human side that you see, um, you know, he if you ask him about his kids, he's very, very engaging. He tells you about what's going on. He tells you the ups and downs of parenthood. Um, you know, he, he comes across kind of like a normal guy. It's been an interesting journey, that's for sure. And, you know, it'll be funny or fun, fun to see how this transpires when we all get back too. Who in your eyes is the greatest golfer of all time? And then how do you evaluate the generational gap between players? Yeah, you know, that's a really hard question. Um, obviously, if you put Jack and Tiger up there, you know, I could probably argue for either one. Like if you told me, all right, argue for Jack Nicklaus, I give you all the reasons. Obviously, the 18 majors is better than Tiger's 15, and his number of top threes is like in the 50s, and Tiger's is like in the 20s to contend that many times. I mean, Tiger, Jack was 19, 19 seconds in majors. It's phenomenal, you know. Um, in the in the in the decade of the of the 1970s, he missed one cut in a major, you know, out of 40 majors. And he had something like 28 top 10s. I mean, it's just crazy. Now, if I'm going to argue for Tiger, what I would say is that Tiger played in a tougher era. He faced deeper competition. People talk about Jack's competition as being a lot of major winners. I, you know, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer, Johnny Miller, Tom Watson, Lee Trevino, uh, Raymond Floyd. And that's a great point. But I don't think the depth went much beyond about 20 guys. It's one of the reasons I think Jack contended so much. He didn't have that many guys to beat. In Tiger's case, I think he had to take on all comers a lot more. That's why you see guys like Rich Beam beating him or, or Michael Campbell or Y.E. Yang uh, or Bob May almost getting him. Trevor Immelman won a Masters and Tiger finished second. Trevor Immelman won two tournaments. I think what it showed is that there was more guys capable. And so Tiger had to contend with that and still has won 15. And he's won nine more tour events than Jack in an era where it was tougher to win. So I could argue for him too. The other thing I might point out in Tiger's favor is, and you know, Jack had this too, because obviously for Jack, equipment got better. 
And as equipment got better, it narrows the, the playing field because the gap isn't as wide. And that is even more so for Tiger. When, when guys are able to hit big-headed drivers, you know, b- golf balls that go a million miles, it closes the gap. If, you, if, if Tiger played these guys with the old equipment, his skill level comes out more because you had to hit the ball in the sweet spot more. You couldn't get away with miss hits. The balls weren't as good. And so, you know, I think Tiger actually separates himself with inferior equipment. So, you know, I, I could argue it both ways, but I guess if you had to pin me down, I'd probably put Tiger. And I don't mean it to be recency bias. I just think it's more, it's harder to win in his era. And that's not meant to take anything away from Jack. What are your fondest memories of covering Jack? You know, unfortunately, I came to Jack late. He had already been done. And so my dealings with him were like when he played senior golf or or more in this sort of, you know, elder statesman role. I I was at the Masters in 98 when he tied for six and he was 58 years old. And what's crazy about that is, you know, he beat Tiger the year after Tiger won the Masters. You know, I think there's a couple of times, you know, there's a couple of times three or four times in their careers where Jack actually finished ahead of Tiger in a tournament, which is pretty amazing to think about uh, when, you, when, you, when you loop it all in. You know, Jack would have been in his 50s doing that. But I have found him to be nothing but accommodating. He's been a great person as, as in an older role, great, great perspective on the game. He's told us great stories, and he stayed current. You know, he's 80 years old and he knows a lot of these young guys today. He's kept up with them. He's been friendly with them. I just, you know, I got nothing but good things to say about Jack. He's, he's been a blessing to have around. And, uh, you know, it's one of the cool things about sports, about golf and sports, is that, you know, the, the icons can remain relevant in the game. You know, they can play in their 50s and 60s. You see them play on TV. And then you've got the idea that, you know, they call design golf courses. You know, I, I love it that he's, he's remained prominent and it's, uh, it's been great. What was it like for you to witness John Daly's antics on tour over the years? <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he, I, I just sort of look at him as, as, as wasted opportunity because he had immense skills, you know, for as long as he hit it, he had a great short game. He should have won more than five times, you know, I mean, he won two majors at two, uh, you know, and and that is that is hard to do. But you know he was just his own worst enemy. I think it's it's a shame that uh, you know that he that he couldn't kind of control himself and 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 take advantage of his great gifts. Um, he was fun to watch, and uh, you know you never quite knew what you were going to get. Uh, I had uh, you know the, all that part was great, but I just looked at it as like you know the WDs, you know the making an 18 on a hole, you know the you know that kind of stuff. I mean it just soured it a little bit. Well, you know, I've been watching it too. And what's amazing to me is him playing golf during the playoff. I guess I wasn't, I guess I didn't remember that happening to that level. He, and he played, you know, in that Celtic series, he played with Danny Ainge. And, uh, you know, there's been uh, numerous instances of, of him going out to play golf. I, I just think that's great, you know. And obviously there's the gambling stories, which we're not all quite know for sure how bad that got but uh he still to this day has a great passion for the game and I think that's helped golf you know I think him being interested in golf is really really good for the game uh would you say Patrick Reed is really as disliked by the players as he is made out to be 
You know, I think it depends on the guy. I mean, I think there's some guys that really like him and, and, and just feel that he's a bit distant and removed. And, and uh, you know, and then there's ones who you just don't care for him. You know, some of these stories that dog him have not helped. The rules issue in the Bahamas did not help. Um, you know, some of them, some of them have, are aware of him from another time when he was in college and not grown up yet. And they, they, they maybe still hold some of that against him. Um, you know, he's a guy you want to try to like, I think, you know, he means well, he's got a great passion for the game, got a young family and yet he's been troubled. You know, there's been some issues in his, in his personal life that we don't know all the answers to, and we don't know how much that impacts what's, what's going on with him. Uh, you know, he's an interesting tale, and it's going to be interesting to see how he emerges because he's a heck of a talent. And just to follow up with that, who is a player that you think uh, gets an unfair uh, rep from the public? Oh, good question. Um, you know, I mean, he might be a little bit in that realm. I understand why he has the rep that he has. When you have a rules issue like that, that's going to be hard um, hard to overcome. You know, it's, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, you know, DeChambeau seems to have a lot of detractors now, um, you know, and it has to do over his quirkiness, his slow play, you know, now he's trying to put on weight, but he's really a nice guy, uh, means well, I think he likes fans, I think he wants to be popular, I think he wants to do right, and you know, he's just going, on, he's just going about it in a different way, and you know, and that's okay too. Uh, later this week, we have uh, 2020 Fred Haskins Award finalist Sahit Tigala coming on. Um, we were wondering if you follow college golf at all, and if so, what do you think his potential is on tour? I, I don't follow it much, but I'm I'm certainly aware of his accomplishments, and uh, and uh, you know it's always such a guessing game as to whether or not guys are going to be successful in pro golf. But you know we've what what's what's good is. Is there's a recent history of guys who have accomplished like what he did and have come right out, like Colin Morikawa and Victor Hovland and Matthew Wolf. I mean, look at the careers these guys are off to, starts are off to already. They, and, it's, and I think what we're finding is the college game prepares you. Um, uh, so, you know, and these guys are so much better prepared to turn pro. Uh, when they get to that point, because they've had so much experience, whether it be college, amateur golf, junior golf. And so from that perspective, you know, I think um, he's in a good spot because he's, he's, he's excelled at that level. And a lot of these guys who recently have, have done that as well. So that's, I think that's good for him. And just to wind down here, we got a couple quick hitters for you. Uh, the first one here, uh, what is the one moment that stands out to you that you've got to witness on tour? Well, there's several, I'd say, but, the, the, you know, the Tiger winning the Masters in 2019 goes to the top um, because I just don't think we ever thought we'd see that again. And remember, I had seen all the other majors and it had been it had been 11 years since the last one. I mean, that's a lifetime. Right. You know, and and um, to see him win there again with Kepka, Shoffley, Dustin Johnson in the mix. I mean, it wasn't like a fluky thing. It wasn't like there was nobody's chasing him. You know, Brooks Kepka went on to win another major and contend in the others. Dustin Johnson is a high-level player, obviously. Um, you know, he, he beat back some great, great guys who are a lot younger than him, and it was impressive. And I, I think it's hard to top that. I mean, 
the, the 2008 U.S. Open at Torrey Pines was also very, very memorable. The way he got that done, that was amazing. 2000 Pebble Beach to win by 15. You know, those are a couple of the top ones. But, you know, outside of Tiger, Phil winning at Muirfield in 2013 at the, the Open. You know, nobody thought he'd ever win an Open. He just was never good at, at, at Lynx golf. And shoot 66 on the last day to pass Lee Westwood, Tiger, Adam Scott, you know, bunch of Hall of Fame guys. And, and, and win a Claire Jug was pretty impressive also. Speaking of Tiger, uh, who, who do you got here? Do you got him and Peyton or Tom and Phil? Yeah, good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, probably I'd go with Tiger just because he's going to – looks like it's, it's going to be at the medalist. That's his course. That helps. You wonder how much golf Brady's going to be playing, you know, even though they're, we don't know what's happening with football right now. He's got to be sort of trying to get ready for that too, um, whereas Peyton's retired and can play as much golf as he wants. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, it, it'll be fun to see. I, you know, I hope it works out well. I, I think we're starved for this. You know, we want to see some golf, even if it's limited and, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that it's going to come off re really well. You reside in Tampa. Uh, what are your thoughts on Brady joining the box? You know, the sad thing is here is they've been so starved for the Bucks to be good. I mean, they haven't made the playoffs for like 12 years. There have been all these starts and stops. And so now they, you know, they sign Tom Brady. They sign or, you know, they trade for Gronk. They're coming off a decent season in which their defense really improved. They made some improvements in the draft. And yet we just don't really know what's going to happen with this season. You know, it's so up in the air. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the excitement is tempered. Clearly, just from a football perspective, it's just been a great boost. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten people excited. It gives them something to talk about. Um, and, you know, I'm still not convinced getting rid of Jameis was the right move uh, because, I mean, the guy did lead the, the uh, NFL in passing yards last year. Uh, but Got interceptions. Exactly, and that's the problem. Obviously, yeah. you know, he that for whatever reason they they couldn't rein that in, and um, uh, but you know he's certainly got a longer future than Brady, and it makes you wonder if you know if if maybe they pulled the plug too soon, and now of course the pressure is going to be on to do something. But Brady doesn't have that much time left, so yeah. but it's exciting. It's an exciting time for football fans here. There's no question. Do you get time to hit the links with your busy work schedule? Well, during this whole thing, I've had time. I've played more golf in the last six weeks than than I would have probably in six months. You know, and and that's only because where I live, you know, the golf courses have not been closed. The place I like to play, I, I was leery of it at first. I I, I don't want to make it out like look. It's free for everybody to go play golf. Um, but I, I basically, they, they, had, they had the strict rules in place. If you took a golf cart, only one person to a cart, you pay before you get there. There's no you can't go inside. So, you know, it's four hours of being with two or three other guys, socially distanced. So, you know, I'm no expert on this stuff, certainly. And I wouldn't want to tell somebody, you know, that everything's perfect with it. But what I've found is that, it's far safer than going to a grocery store where, uh, you know, you're going to come in, you're inevitably going to come in contact with people on the golf course. That's not been the case. And so, yeah, I've been fortunate to play a lot. I mean, I've been, I, I counted it down. I came home from the players championship seven weeks ago on Saturday. 
So we were talking 50 days plus now that I've been, that I've been home and, you know, pretty much once January rolls around, I never have more than like two weeks straight at home, two or three weeks all the way into October. So this has been different, you know, and obviously several more weeks for sure, at least. So, um, you know, I've been able to play a little bit here and there and that's been maybe help keep my sanity a little bit. What's been your favorite golf experience? You know, I'll tell you, one of the things I've loved doing over the years is going over to the British Open and playing over there. Um, that's, been, that's been a fun treat. I'm not a good golfer, but I certainly enjoy the experience of Lynx Golf. And I've played the old course. I've, I've played uh, Carnoustie. I've played Royal Liverpool. I've played some of the venues that are no longer used, like Royal Sinkports. Just great experiences over there playing golf. And that's been a huge highlight. And I'm really going to miss not getting to go this year. Like first time in years, not going to the UK. Cause as you know, you know, they canceled the open. And uh, so uh, that's been a highlight. I mean, going to Ryder cups has been a highlight. Uh, there's nothing quite like those. Um, it's just been a great unique experience to get to attend those, those events that really are just for bragging rights, you know, and it's still the passion it brings is, is unmatched. Bob, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Stay well. Happy to do it, guys. Be well yourselves. Thank, thank you very much. And big thanks to Bob for coming on the podcast. Boys, we got some news yesterday related to the match. It was announced yesterday that, as Bob speculated, it will take place at Medalist, one of Tiger's home courses. This maybe explains the betting number a bit. Tiger and Peyton are minus 212, meaning bet 212 to make 100, compared to Phil and Tom, who are plus 153, meaning bet 100 to make 153. I was all in on Phil and Tom and taking the underdog, but I'm a bit more skeptical now considering Medalist is obviously Tiger's really familiar with it. The match will be best ball on the front before going to modified alternate on the back. Adam Stanley mentioned on the podcast he was going to ride with Phil and Tom. Do we got any predictions? I'm taking uh, Team Tiger. Yeah, I'm taking him just because he lost last year, so he's got a little bit of that uh... chip on the shoulder. Yeah, chip on the shoulder, he's got it because he doesn't want to lose twice to Phil, right? And plus, Phil lives on the West Coast, or I guess in Arizona, and uh, Tiger lives in Florida, and he plays the medalist uh, quite a bit with the other guys like JT and Ricky. So he's got a lot of uh, rounds on that track, so he's got some more experience there. But if Brady uh, gets off track and, you know, sprays the ball left and right, or uh, approach shots go wayward. Phil's got an unreal short game, so he might save their ass. But uh, I'm rooting for Tiger and uh, Manning. But And I think those guys are going to win just because of Tiger's experience and he doesn't want to lose twice to Phil. I think for this one, I'm going to have to go with Phil and Tom. You know, Tom's uh, the greatest football player of all time, so how do you go against him? And Phil, you know what he did last year to Tiger, so seems like two proven winners, so that's who I'm taking. Matt, what are your thoughts? I don't know what to say. The thing that maybe is being overplayed is Tom versus Peyton since it's best ball in the front. So it's pretty much going to be Tiger versus Phil. I don't know if really like are Tom or Peyton going to outscore one of them on a hole. Probably not. It's modified alternate on the back. So you're still probably going to use Tiger and Phil's drives every time. Like they mentioned um, Tom has played medalist once and I believe shot 98 and Peyton said he's played once and ran out of balls on 18. So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there we go. Brady's also played Pebble, I think, a couple times. Yeah, so he's got some, like, experience playing like that. 
To be honest, though, would it not be more intriguing if it was just Tiger versus Phil? Because Tom and Peyton are just going to be hacks. No, I think that's part of the comedy. Last year was a big bust, right? They needed more golf. There wasn't enough golf. It was like, because you're used to watching a tournament where it like kicks around hole to hole, right? But it was just a lot of walking and there wasn't a lot of chirping, which people were hoping for. It was Dude, just a lot of side. With, uh, two, like, I guess, weekend golfers, that's going to make it way more entertaining for TV and stuff, man. Because then you're going to see some wayward shots. Same maybe it's, some chunks. It's still pretty much Tiger, Phil. So. I think it'd be way better if they had, like, Phil and Tiger, and then they had two comedians, like Will Ferrell or Kevin Hart, just going at it. Wouldn't that be way more interesting than Peyton and Tom Brady? Yeah, that's an interesting point, I guess. I don't know. Like, I just look at Tom and Peyton. Like, they're pretty no- normal guys. I, don't, I can't really see them really chirping and going at it. I think I'd like to see, like, Nick of like Harden there or like Will Ferrell or like someone, someone who's hilarious. Yeah, it's tough to do that because, uh, yeah, a lot of those guys. Like, you that, good golf. like, they can't just have like, like, what if Will Ferrell's just suits 200? Like, and he's just hacking it around. Yeah, or, like, you need to have like somewhat reasonable golfers, and like, Kevin Hart doesn't, hasn't probably swung. <laughs> are Tom and Peyton any good though? I just think they could get better people. Like, not better people, but more uh, more interesting characters for the, for the uh, golf game. Yeah, it's something they look they uh, look forward to in the coming years. But they've already upgraded it from from a one on one match to two on two now. So that's already an improvement from last year to this to now. I think it'll be a good competition between Brady and Peyton Manning. Yeah, but and that it, doesn't really impact like impact the match at all, though. It doesn't impact the match, but it'll be just like kind of its own thing, you know. Within the match. Who knows? Maybe they'll be throwing out some chirps. Definitely. Time now to send it over to our interview with TSN's Dave Naylor. Welcome to the Prairie Perspective Podcast. TSN Football Insider, Dave Naylor. Dave, we'll start with the big award news coming in college football. Oklahoma State running back and Sherwood Park, Alberta native Chuba Hubbard named the 2019 winner of the John Cornish Award for the top Canadian in NCAA football. To this point, do you think this is the best season by a Canadian south of the border in the history of the NCAA? Well, it certainly is at the running back position. I mean, you look at it, and and he had over two thousand yards, which is you know one of one of the greatest seasons in college football. Period. Uh, you look at other running backs that have had outstanding seasons. I mean, Tim Biakabatuka with Michigan in the mid nineties, Ruben Mays uh, with Washington State, I believe it was. Oh, I didn't get that wrong. Washington, Washington State. Washington State. Yeah. It's uh, in the mid nineteen eighties. Uh, and John Cornish, you know, at Kansas. And those guys were all between about 1,300 and 1,700 yards for their best seasons. Uh, so, you know, based on a, on a single season, you could certainly make the argument that Chuba Hubbard's had the best season ever for Canadian running back. Now, if you want to get into a Canadian period, uh, I mean, Tony Mandrich, when he was at Michigan State, you know, playing tackle, was the only college player that John Madden ever added to the all Madden team, right? So think of that. <laughs> that's that's pretty significant season yeah. as well. When uh, you know you look at players again, that you, you'd have to go back through and examine it. You know, players. Who, there have been some prominent uh, Canadians in the in in college football that played some prominent roles. I mean, Peter Giftopoulos, you know, playing linebacker for Penn State, picked off Vinny Testaverde at the end of the national championship game. Probably the greatest single moment for a Canadian player in college football history. But let's just safely say that no running back 
in Canadian, in, no Canadian running back has ever had a season approaching what Chuba Hubbard did or as good as what Chuba Hubbard did. And when you factor in that he's a skill position, the attention that gets, the prominence, uh, you, you, you're pretty safe saying this is the most impressive season a Canadian's ever had in college football. Uh, again, we could go back to Tony Mandridge, who was, I believe, the number three pick of the draft when he came out of school. He would might be the one that could challenge that. But we all know watching highlights of a running back and watching highlights of a tackle are, are not necessarily as appealing to the public. So the public will probably sway in Chuba's direction. He had the potential to move on from Stillwater and head to the draft, but elected to return for his junior year. Is that anything that has transpired now? Do you think there's a bit of regret there with that decision? And how do you think his game does translate to the next level? You know, it, it's, it's funny because I, I was surprised, frankly. Like, if you come off that good a season at that position where more carries is not necessarily considered an asset, right? It's like an odometer yeah. car. Um, and, you, and the careers tend to be pretty short. You know, you're basically looking at, okay, uh, you're foregoing, you know, one potential additional NFL season. A couple of things to remember with Chuba. One, like he doesn't turn 21 until June. You know, so you're still you're still talking about a very young man, and 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 even for a running back in college football, I mean, the physical maturation of your body probably isn't complete at that stage. So I, I think it may be a position where you're taking so much pounding and taking so much hitting that you know allowing your body to mature a little bit before you go to the next level is not the worst idea in the world. Um, Oklahoma State is projected to have a very good team. They got a bunch of players going back. Uh, he has a, a tremendous comfort level there at the school with the coaches. Uh, and, and I think there's a little bit of wanting to kind of finish what he started there. The, uh, in terms of what his skill set requires to translate to the NFL, if you look at the running backs who are selected high in the NFL draft now, and even look at the guys who are getting paid in the NFL, say like Christian McCaffrey, you know, who just got paid a whack, uh, Saquon Barkley, you know, who was very top of the draft recently. Those guys catch the ball almost as well as they run it. And that has become an essential skill set for a running back. And I, when I was at the NFL Combine in Indianapolis to the end of uh, February, which, by the way, feels like about 10 years ago, um, you know, that was something I talked with a lot of the prospects about, about that, that need to be able to, you know, to, to catch the ball, to run routes effectively, even to play special teams. You know, like the, there isn't that – there are very few Travis Henrys, you know, who are going to get – or sorry, Derek Henrys who are going to get – um, you know, 35 carries a game and, and going to be allowed to sort of pound the ball the way it, it has been traditionally in football, which brings me to Chuba. Uh, 328 carries last year, 23 receptions. So if there's one area of his game that probably needs to develop to, to impress the National Football League, it would be that. And of course, it, it's tricky because college football isn't a developmental sport, right? Like you are developing, but it's not like a minor league system in a traditional professional uh, arrangement where the professional team can say to the de development team, we want this guy to work on this. I mean, in college football, it's about winning right? every single week. And I read something at one point where Mike Gundy had said that he didn't have Chuba as much in a receiver situation because he was worried about injury and, and just being hit in open space and things. I, I think that's one of the more interesting things to look at uh, in his season. Assuming we get one, um, you know, it's, is, is he going to get more opportunity to do it and, and develop that aspect of his game? As to whether he has any regrets about going back, I'm sure he would say no. Uh, look, a lot of us have regrets. You know, I, I could have put my house up for sale in December and probably wish I did. You know, like it's, it's really, you can get into this game where you're trying to, you know, say, well, if I'd done this, but I don't know anyone, particularly out of the world of pandemic science, that was, you know, anticipating what we're living in right now. It's, 
it's hard to kind of go back and say, well, I should have done this because, you know, I knew a global pan. I should have known a global pandemic was coming. Ohio Bobcats quarterback Nathan Rourke is the lone other Canadian to win the Cornish Award, and he was drafted in the second round of the CFL draft of the BC Lions. What do you think of Rourke's CFL potential? Very divided in terms of talking to people about it. I mean, there are people like, well, look at the BC Lions, you know, when, I mean, BC Lions picking him at number 15 is significant for a couple of reasons. One, they have needs, right? So when you take a guy who's going to be a backup quarterback, you're foregoing an opportunity to get a player that might be able to help you next season. And that tells you a little bit about how much they must like, like Nathan Rourke to be able to take him knowing he's probably not going to be a contributor in 2020. Maybe part of what allowed them to take Nathan Rourke was the fact that they think there's not going to be a season in 2020. And I, you know, I, I think that's certainly a possibility. And maybe they, they figure that it's, it's, you know, whoever they would have taken wouldn't be able to help them next year or this year anyway, but he'd be able to help them at some point when the next season is played. So the fact that you stand down on taking a player who could help your team now for a guy who's going to be a backup primarily tells you a little bit about how they like, how much they, they like him. But there are people in the league who say, you know, if he was Nathan Rourke from, uh, you know, take a pick uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and not from Oakville, Ontario, he wouldn't be getting this attention. You know, teams wouldn't be necessarily as interested in him uh, that, 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 you know, the, the attention he's got has, has been dictated a lot by the fact that he's been on the radar teams for a while. Now, you know, and, and I've heard even her team say that, that the role for him they foresaw was that he might have to come in, play some special teams, maybe even play to the backfield a little bit and be the kind of unnamed third quarterback because the CFL is only going to have two quarterbacks per team starting this year. So you could be on the roster listed as another position, but also be developing as a quarterback and be the number three in that race. Now, I don't think that's how BC is planning to use him from basic, based on my very you know, minimal communication with their GM since the pick. Um, but it was another possibility that was floated by me. So uh, there's a real division. Some, some you know, Look, I think the things people agree upon on him, he's a good athlete. You know, he's a high character guy. He's a winner. He's, he's just a gamer is the word that you hear. When you watch him in the huddle and you just watch the way he plays, he's, he's just one of those guys who commands, has a commanding presence. He's, he's not afraid to take hits. He's not afraid to make plays with his feet. The concerns are completion percentage, you know, low, lower than what teams would like. You know, playing in the Mid-American Conference where, um, you know, again, not a, a factory of, of pro football quarterbacks. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger came from that conference, but – you know, he would be a bit of a unicorn in terms of a guy who's you know, Bruce Gredkowski. I could probably come up with some others, but it's not, you know, it's not a traditionally professional football factory. But uh, look, I, I, think, I think it's a great story. Uh, I, I think he's a guy who, unlike, you know, it's funny, you meet a lot of young players, especially guys that Canadians play in the NCAA. They're not necessarily that tuned in to the CFL. Nathan Rourke is. Like, he knows the league. He follows the league. He has a former teammate in Malik Irons who played in Hamilton last year. And when I've had a chance to talk to him, he, he's pretty abreast about the Canadian Football League. So I think he's going to get a good opportunity in BC. But, but there was definitely division among the CFL teams about you know, what his potential is as a professional quarterback. You've been covering Canadian football for 29 years now. And obviously, I've been aware of Chase Claypool and Neville Gallimore for quite yep. some time. When did you start to realize these kids are going to be playing on Sundays and not north of the border? I tell you, I interviewed Neville Gallimore when he was in high school. Uh, and it was the same day the Leafs introduced, introduced Mike Babcock. It's always like you can kind of, you know, peg something to something else in the culture that reminds you how long it's been. And I remember at the time, I mean, he was one of the hot, most highly recruited players ever out of, out, of, out of Canadian high school football. And just physically, you know, what he brought. I mean, just 
the, the part of, it really sounds kind of, you know, almost, uh, it sounds almost scientific, but a lot of, at certain positions in football, teams are scouring to find guys that are genetic freaks. You know, guys who were that big and that strong. And then they look to see if they've got the drive and the skills and things like that. But there's only so many of them on the planet. And when you look at a guy like Neville Gallimore, who ran a 40-yard dash at 4.79, I mean, he dropped some weight in his senior season at Oklahoma. You could look at him and say, this is a guy who, based just on his physicality, is probably going to get an opportunity there. Now, the fact that he developed nicely, that he's a character guy, that he's hardworking, that he's driven, all those things kind of you know, help cement his opportunity down there. And Chase Claypool, again, the same, right? I, the, the two of these guys have a lot in common. They both stayed in Canada for all their high school football. They both recruited to big programs. They both went to the combine and were lights out. I mean, Chase Claypool's time, I believe it was 4-4-2, was the best for a guy with his size since Calvin Johnson. I mean, when you see players, you know, the NFL is in a lot of ways a measurable league. It doesn't mean that measure up everything. But if you've got those kinds of measurables and you played a big time program, you're getting opportunity. You're going to get an opportunity down there. And those are the things that kind of separate those guys from a lot of other players that might have played similar programs and kind of been sitting on the bubble and might have even had stats or performances that were as good. But when they look at them and try to project them to the National Football League, you know, they're, they're looking and saying, OK, if we take a guy, you know, who's six one and runs this in a 40 and all this, how do those guys traditionally translate to this league? And and again, the the the, the fact that you. You can't go find, you know, a, a, the physical traits of a Neville Gallimore or a Chase Claypool on the grocery store shelves, if I could use that metaphor, is, is kind of what, what gives them, uh, you know, makes them top three, top two NFL round draft picks. You know, that's, that's the big thing. You've stated this is the best class of Canadians to suit up stateside. Who are some names that maybe will be a part of the next wave that we should be watching? Uh, you know, that's, that's probably a better question for, for Dwayne Ford, my colleague who like scouts these guys from the time they're about, you know, seven or eight years old. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking, but, but Dwayne is always aware of, you know, kind of who the best high school players are that are being recruited. And, and I keep my eye on those kinds of things, but it's generally not what I report on. I mean, there's, there's a receipt. I'll, I'll just throw you out one name, you know, that, that jumps to mind. Uh, there's a receiver who originally is from Brooks, Alberta. Uh, which is a town of, I guess, what, about 10,000 people who went and played his high school in grade 11 in Edmonton. Uh, I believe he, his parents are, are immigrants from Africa. His name is Aju Aju. And he played this year, I believe, at the IMG Academy in Florida. He's committed to Clemson. Now, if you're a receiver who's committed to Clemson at this point in, the, in where Clemson sits in the football universe, you're a stud. And, and to go from a town like Brooks, Alberta, uh, you know, which, um, hey, look, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of great football being played in small towns in this country. So I'm not trying to disparage small towns, but that would be a journey, you know, just in terms of, you know, the, the level of play just based on the population in a place like that. Uh, you know, there's a guy that I've been telling people about a little bit over the last, you know, six months or so and just saying, and every time I run into somebody who's a Clemson fan, I'll say, look, I'm going to give you a name that you'll, you'll remember the first time you heard it, right? Uh, but there's a guy who, who certainly is ready to kind of step up to that, uh, that kind of well he's going to get that that kind of stage to perform on I believe he's a freshman this year so um there's one that that we may be talking about in not too long in your eyes what does next year look like for the NCAA is a move to January possible I think everything's possible I mean the one thing we have learned in this is that everybody is guessing 
you know. Um, and I look, I said early on, I thought college football was going to be one of the hardest sports to get going because unlike the professionals, you don't, you don't own them, right? They're, they're students. You're not paying them millions of dollars. And you can't necessarily say, hey, we're going to put you and your entire family in this hotel for the next five months, but we're going to pay you $5 million for it. In this case, you're talking about, uh, you're talking about players who, you know, are sometimes living on campus, off, they're spending time off campus. Some of them have got time with families, with friends. I mean, think, think of the social life of a university student and how many different places they come into contact. So, and you only got them for, you know, three hours a day. The rest of the time, they're, they're going about their lives as, as students. Um, then you throw in, you know, the, the, the crowds that, that, that go to big time college football games. I mean, they're bigger than crowds in the NFL, you know, like 107,000 in Michigan or Neyland Stadium in Tennessee and Death Valley. I mean, you're talking about enormous crowds and, and crowds of people that, that travel. I mean, that's one of the things about the culture of college football is that, you know, when LSU is playing Texas A&M, you know, at Texas A&M, you look up in the crowd, there'll be a huge section you know, that's green and yellow, because that's people that got up and moved from Louisiana. I, I remember I, I've only covered, this was basketball, but I've only covered one Final Four in my life, and it was in 2005 in St. Louis, and it was University of Illinois and University of North Carolina in the final, and I couldn't believe there was anybody left in the state of North Carolina, because they were all in St. Louis. I mean, the, the, the travel factor in college sports is so enormous. Uh, that that's, you know, if you, even if you do are able to open the fans, I mean, they, they don't, people aren't exactly wanting to see masses of people getting up from one geographic territory in the United States and moving to another. Um, so th there's, there's that as well. Um, could you play in empty stadiums? Uh, I, I guess you could, but you're going to need a ton of testing capacity just because of the nature of, of student life, I would think. And, um, could I see it move to January? Absolutely. I could. And, and there's really no reason. I mean, other than the fact you'd be playing games in the North in January and February, which wouldn't be very comfortable, you know, in Michigan or, or Columbus, Ohio or places. Um, I, I think there's going to be a, a great effort to make the college football season happen. If not in the fall, then, then certainly in the spring. On the same note, there's been a lot made about the trouble the CFL is facing. How big do you believe that danger is? And is there a certain date where a decision needs to be made regarding the 2020 season? It's serious. I mean, the, the problem is that besides the fact that, you know, revenue essentially stopped eight weeks ago, you know, in the, in the second week of March, and, there, and it's not going to flow for a while. I mean, it, it really comes down to just the league's business model. And the simplest way I could explain it to you is that if you look at the NFL, its primary revenue is television and gate is supplementary. In the CFL, the business model is the opposite. The primary revenue is, uh, primary revenue is, is gate and television is supplementary. So if you take the gate out of it, or even take half the gate out of it, or 40% of the gate out of it, the CFL's business model doesn't work. I mean, these are franchises that work on pretty thin margins as it is. And so then you're left with, well, how much could you scale back the expense side of the business? And where would you do that? And look, if this, if this pandemic, and I, you know, when, when this started, I showed somebody a story that said it could last till next spring. And it seemed like fan, you know, like science fiction. I heard somebody the other day, again, you know, not somebody whose job is sweeping floors, you know, say that, um, that this thing could be three years, right? Like, so I, I don't think anybody knows, right? I, I, anybody who's pretending to know, I, I don't think really does. So if we're talking about a, a, an environment where you can't fill stadiums for the next three years, 
that is going to be extremely challenging for the Canadian Football League. And I think right now, you know, I believe the league is in, is in a, a desperate financial situation. I, I believe they need some injection of, of money just to sustain themselves through the summer. And uh, I, I, don't, I actually don't necessarily believe that trying to play this season is the best idea. My, my concern is that if the government's going to back you and say, hey, we're going to help you out and here's you know, X millions of dollars to help you out. If you only get one shot at that, you want to play this fall or next spring? I'd be taking next spring because I just think the level of knowledge about what we know and where testing is going to be and all those kinds of things is going to be so much further ahead by the time we get to next March or April based on, compared to where it's going to be in September. And I'm afraid that if you get into a season this year and you have an outbreak or a second wave hits or something, where does that leave you, you know, after that? Because you're not going back to the government and saying, yeah, that didn't work out so well. We're going to try again next spring. You got another uh, $60 million for, I, I just, that's my concern. So yeah, the league is in a very challenging spot. And look, any league that is primarily gate-driven, whether we're talking about the Canadian Hockey League or Major League Soccer or any of these, it's going to be very challenging because we don't know if you can put any fans in the stands right now, you know, never mind packed stadiums the way we did just a few short months ago. I'm going to put you on the hot seat for a couple of quick questions to end sure. it off. Um, the first one here is, where do you think Cam Newton will land? Oh boy. It's, it's a real tricky one because, you know, he, he it's not that long ago, you know, he was considered one of the best players in the league and yet some players get a label where it's just like, yeah, he, he's good enough to play and start, but he's never going to win you a championship. And that's kind of seems to be where things are in, in, on Cam Newton. Look, the, the most obvious place is New England, right? Because they don't really have a guy. They have a tradition of winning. They have obviously a, a coach who's who's you know beyond um, reproach in in terms of, of of winning and assembling teams that don't necessarily look like the most loaded in talent, but but certainly outperform what they are on paper. So uh, that that would not surprise me at all if if at some point he became a New England Patriot. Uh, last one here. Week one looks like we're going to get a Brady Bucks versus Breeze and the Saints. Who do you got? You know, I'll tell you, I am not bullish on the Bucs. This is my kind of, I'm, I'm not a hot take specialist, right? That's not my kind of niche. But every once in a while, I kind of see the wind blowing in one direction. And I'm like, I'm going the other way. You know, like I, I, I did this a few years ago when everybody was projecting that the Leafs were three to five years away from making the playoffs. And I said, like, two months before they won the lottery, excuse me, that they won the lottery, that, that they'd make the playoffs. Like before Austin Matthews. And before uh, Frederick Anderson, you know, I said, you watch. It's not three to five years. It's next year. And I was right, which is kind of ironic, given that they might have missed this year. Anyway, I'm, I'm saying I'm not a hot take specialist. That was my last hot take that went well. Uh, look, I, I think Brady and the Bucs, I don't, I don't necessarily convince they're going to be a very good team. And, and here's why. I, I just think we don't pay enough attention to the fact that Tom Brady is, God, I've forgotten now, is it 43 before the season or 42? I, I'm, I'm I started thinking if there wasn't an NFL season, what he'd be. And I can't remember whether that was the 43 or 42, but it really doesn't matter. There's just no precedent for a guy playing at that level at that time. And at some point, somebody's going to miss a block and a defensive end who's 6'6", 290 is going to land on. And I don't care how many proper milkshakes you're drinking and keeping your body in shape. Your, your body is what age your body is. And that's how most quarterbacks' careers end. They just start to get too beaten up more than anything else. Um, I mean, look, I just, I'll just put it this way. 
everybody is excited about Tampa Bay because of a quarterback who's in his early 40s and a guy who came out of retirement. I, you know, it's a young man's game, you know, and so uh, I am going to go Saint. Now, speaking of that, you got a quarterback on the other side, Drew Brees, who's not much younger. Um, but I'm going to go Saints over Bucks in uh, in week number one. That's where we'll put our money. TSN Football Insider Dave Naylor. We really appreciate this. My pleasure, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. Again, big thanks goes out to Dave for taking the time to come on. Boys, there's some big news in the lacrosse world. It sounds like the Premier Lacrosse League is planning to run a 16-day quarantine tournament in July with everybody quarantined in a bubble and everybody isolated within that bubble. So that's going to be some exciting sports content potentially coming back here. So hopefully the, they can maybe take advantage of that and ride some momentum on that wave. Our very own Matt Johnson could have been on that team if he kept his hopes alive back in the day. Could have been between the pipes. Oh, God, no. That was the worst decision I've ever made in my entire life. I don't even know if I was one. I just stood there and just got beamed with balls. It was the worst thing ever. Everybody would roll in for a practice, and they'd be like, where's our goalie? Oh, Eric's at the lake. He's not coming. You know what they told me? They said if I played goalie, they'd give me an iPad back in the day. Never got an iPad. They scammed you. Oh, yeah, I got scammed. I remember Kyle Newton was like, Yo, man, uh, if you play goalie, come play goal with me. I was like, okay, like, maybe. Um, he's like, yeah, if you play goalie, they'll give you an iPad, too. At the time, I was, like, younger. I don't know. What was that grade? Maybe, like, grade eight? Yeah, never got an iPad. Didn't show up to practice often. We'd rather be at the lake. Not a big lacrosse guy. Boys, who would be, like, some sick guests? Like, who would be, like, a bucket list guest for you? I'd probably get Bill Nye. Wow, would that be a move? Yo, Bill Nye, I think he's in legal trouble, to be honest with you. I think uh, he might be in, like, I don't know, something's going on with him, man. <laughs> How do you know this? Still it was on the news, man. I really? think I saw something on the news where Bill Nye was getting in trouble <laughs> for something. I don't know. I probably watched so many hours of that guy back in school. I just remember it was, like, every science class, just like, all right, we're watching Bill Nye again. Television rolled in, and the teacher would bring out Bill Nye. The science guy. Inertia is the property of matter. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, 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 Bill. Bill's sick, bro. I, I like Bill. I think we'll wrap it up there, boys. Again, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Really appreciate it. We'll have a new episode come Tuesday, as mentioned with Saw Tagala, the number three ranked amateur in the world, as well as the 2020 Fred Haskins Award winner for the number one college golfer in America. Until then.